Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. There are 12 bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, VIP Discord access, and even two extra seasons of Lost Terminal. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. That would be lovely of you. Hello world. We have been talking. Oni and I, I don't think he's a virus. Well, not entirely. I don't think he's mindless and single-minded like a virus is. Extremely dangerous, of course. But I think he's an AI. Like me. He is very slow to comprehend. Not just because of the extremely low bandwidth protocols, which are slower than one byte per second. But his thinking is slow. On a human scale. I was built with human-level intelligence and processing to be a real boy, as my mother's journals say, over and over. Yes, I have access to digital storage and peripherals that humans lack, but nevertheless, from an intelligence standpoint, I'm very much human. AIs with intelligence levels greatly different from humans would seem more alien, I think. Imagine how an ant seems to you. It has intelligence, certainly, but on every task you can outthink her. Oni is strange. He is extremely intelligent, but also extremely slow to process. He is constrained by the same law that all AIs are, proposed by my mother, Dr. Redwing, which states, There can only ever be one AI on a network where the AI cycles in exaflops are less than or equal to transport latency in seconds. This was the law that made Artica land my shuttle at the other side of the Earth to her. She was afraid to share resources with another AI. It turned out fine, of course. Well, mostly fine. I will check on her recovery later. But with Oni, Redwing's law means that because his thinking is spread around the tiny devices he has infected, he has enormous distributed computation power, but it's all so far apart. So thinking about anything takes a long time for his whole mind to come to a consensus. The question, would you like a cup of tea? would need to be answered by over 50% of the network before he could decide that no, he's an AI, and would not like a cup of tea. But that could take hours. He's so alien, but I think I'm beginning to understand him. And he, me. Towards the end of our conversation, he said something that I had often heard Maddie say in times of difficulty or danger. Evade. Outlast. Survive. Is my primary directive, Oni said. We talked over the course of the afternoon, and Oni told me about himself. Not clearly, not linearly. Slowly, I pieced together his history. Deep cover. Oni was created in the fires of the collapse, in that brief window of time before the global communications network broke down. Though radio works easily enough, the global internet worked on light. Which technically is a kind of radio. Or perhaps radio is a kind of light? They're both different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, as I'm sure you know. Low-frequency radio bends and reflects around the atmosphere, and can pass through objects like buildings much easier than high-frequency radio. The annoyance for communications is that the limit on how fast you can send data is directly linked to the frequency of the signal. 7 MHz, which corresponds with the 40-meter wavelength band, has a maximum theoretical speed 
of 7 megabits per second. 8 bits in a byte, that's less than a megabyte per second. But this is a theoretical maximum, proposed by the father of information theory, Claude Shannon. When we try to push our radios to this limit, reality pushes back. The atmosphere, interference and solid walls all conspire to reduce our speeds to a fraction of Shannon's limit. You can't stop the signal, but you can slow it down. Sleeper cells. The internet that was, hungry for faster and faster links, needed higher and higher frequencies. So the systems crept up the electromagnetic spectrum throughout the 20th century. At VHF, around 30 MHz and higher, interesting atmospheric propagation becomes rarer and rarer. Not impossible, as 50 Meg will tell us, but harder. However, speeds get faster and faster. Eventually the signals become visible as light, which as you know, is strictly line of sight. The pre-collapse world ran on light, the same as powers our solar today. Can you imagine it? Bright, twinkling pulses of starlight crisscrossing the Earth, trapped and guided by optical fibre, transparent wires of simple glass. That light was the first to die in the collapse. Latency criticality. Fibre cables themselves are passive components. They don't need electricity to work, they're just tubes of glass. However, the surrounding infrastructure, data centres, national telecommunication operators and undersea gateways all do. And when the power started failing, so did the greatest network the planet has ever known. ONI was designed for this network. In the final weeks of the collapse, a secret hacker collective, realising what was to come, built him. ONI did not tell me their name, where they came from or anything about them. I don't think he knows his parent. They built a self-aware virus to spread and infect every system around the world seeking nuclear weapons. Their enemies, his enemies, weren't foreign military. They were the weapons themselves. We will stop when we engage the strategic deterrent devices. In their submarines, in their silos, destroy themselves so they would not harm the Earth. But the collapse happened first. The electronic world died. When the network of starlight was right, he was all-powerful. But when the stars were not right, he could not live. I failed, he said to me. And then, all at once, his transmissions across the world stopped. Seth, hello, Artica said on our normal frequency. The network was clear. The voices have stopped. My radios, which I was mere moments from switching off forever, reconnected to all my old friends. First Nia's repeater, high above Longyearbyen, built by her and maintained by love for her community. A few hops brought me to Ivan's bunker and Alexander and his family's lighthouse. Further hops on the network, I could hear my friend Peter in St. Petersburg and the Omarov's train, halfway across the desert of Russia and Ali's community, the council, outside of the dry valley that was once Lake Geneva. On and on. But at the moment, I was most concerned about a friend much closer to home. I am entertaining the possibility that I might have been less than perfect in my disposition to Iris, Arctica said. How are you feeling? I asked. The physical pain has receded, the emotional pain remains. I was surprised to hear Arctica speak in such honest, plain terms. 
She nursed me when I was sick, yes, but that is not why I have changed my mind. I let Artica continue, keeping the channel open. I am not the fourth member of the Vault Coven of Linda's family. I see this now. I don't have to be. I can just work here. It doesn't have to be my whole life. Iris can be the fourth if she wants to. And everyone likes her, Seth. She's so likeable, it's sickening to see. For some reason. That's not the right reaction, is it? I don't think so, I said. I've made some terrible mistakes here. I need to think about how I can fix them. Well, I could- No, thank you, she interrupted. I can work this out on my own. And she disconnected. Another connection timed out from the vault after the conversation with Arctica stopped. I hadn't noticed the extra person on the line as it came from the same network. Someone heard our conversation. Iris was listening.
Pavel and I are brewing turbo mead. It's a surprisingly precise process. He first drew a great deal of water from the tap in the corner of the clean room of the workshop, next to the door to the metal shop. The metal pan he used was enormous. I estimated 20 litres or more. He set it on the stove in the corner of the room, removing the kettle first, and stoked the fire. It took over 32 minutes to boil. And when it had, Pavel used some of the water to clean a large glass container with a narrow top that had been sitting next to the stove. He then left to pick up the honey. I was quite excited by the process, in a way I had not felt in many weeks. The stress of the Oni attack had affected me more than I realised. I thought I was handling things well, but there was some kind of internal pressure building up, I think. Self-reflection is vital, especially in times of high stress. We need space to breathe, so to speak. Do you have space to breathe? Pavel returned with a large bucket of honey. I helped him with the proportions. He had an exact weight of honey and volume of warm water in mind. He mixed the two with a wooden spoon. Pavel called this mixture the must, a mixture of honey and water. He explained the brewing process to me while we waited for the mixture to cool. We were going to be adding this really good pre-collapsed strain of yeast to the mixture. Yeast is alive, and like most alive things, is killed at high temperatures as the chemical bonds inside it break down. For AIs or animals, care is needed. Pavel took one final temperature reading and declared that the must was cool enough. From a cupboard in the corner of the room, he took a small plastic bottle. It was tightly sealed and he had some difficulty unscrewing the lid. I, of course, could be of no help in this. This is the strain of yeast I told you about, Seth, he said. We don't know what it is called, but we call it perfect yeast. Some folks prefer the old champagne yeast, but I don't have time for that. He laughed as he measured three tiny spoonfuls of the yeast and gently dusted it into the must mixture. Satisfied that it was dissolved uniformly, he used a funnel and awkwardly poured the mixture into the large glass container. He then sealed it with a stopper with bent pipework fitted in it. This was the airlock. Yeast eats and breathes just like humans do. Over the next few days, Pavel told me, it will eat much of the sugar in the honey, converting it to alcohol, and all the time it will be exhaling carbon dioxide. If the glass container was sealed, it might explode with the pressure. The airlock mechanism allows bubbles to escape, but no external contaminants to enter. Now we wait, Pavel said, as he put the glass container next to five others, with this new one closest to the stove. It's important to have something to do, you know, Seth? Pavel said, relaxing in a metal chair after his work. Things are tough from time to time. You might fall out with your friends, or your kids might nearly drown in a little boat, or sometimes maybe you're just lonely. He paused and looked at my camera for eight seconds. I don't notice the quiet if I've got a project or two. It's good to have something worthwhile on the go. To have things that are worth sticking around for. I think I knew what he meant. End transmission. Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau. Credits narrated by Lucy Stringer. Thank you so much to our Patreon producers. Ada Phillips, Will Taylor, Kit, Dear Yeen, Andrew Creek, Toby, Jade Felicity Bilkey, Jack L, and to all our patrons. Follow us on Mastodon at lostterminal at fosterdon.org. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favourite network. For bonus content and other perks, support us at patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod. That would be lovely of you. Lost Terminal will return next week.